All right, all right, everybody. Welcome to Colossae Sherwood. Super glad you're here with us today. If I haven't met you, I'm Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad uh, you are with us. Um, and if I haven't met you, I'd love to get the opportunity to meet you. I know coming to uh, church uh, can be kind of a risky thing. And so I just want to put myself out there and say I'd love to get to know you and your family and your story and, and, and why you're here with us today. So um, we are in Gospel of Luke. And big deal, we're in the second section of the Gospel of Luke. So uh, this is a massive thing. As a preacher, I've never preached the book of the Bible before, like all the way through. So this is like, all right, first, this is like running a marathon, I guess, where you finish the first 5K and now you're in the second set, but on the screen, we're in this second section where Jesus starts his messianic ministry. Now, this is what he has been building up for this whole time. Luke, the author, is writing about these expectations, the prophecies, all of the things that are going to make Jesus unique. And in all of that, now he comes on the scene and he starts his inaugural ministry. Now, the big idea in Luke every week, we'll emphasize this, is the idea of release and freedom. The reason why release and freedom matters is that it doesn't just matter that people have individual salvation. It matters that lives and communities are changed. That's the big idea. To where the gospel doesn't just change us as individuals, but it changes the social structures, the evil injustices, and the systems that exist in that day and in our day. Um, and so that's when we're going to have that big theme going across where the release and freedom actually can come across in some social and economic ways, bringing people out of um, in poverty, bringing people out of a low uh, status. Um, that's kind of the big idea within the Gospel of Luke. And this is where now we're in the section that Jesus is starting to demonstrate that. So as we get started, how many of you have taken a trip back to your hometown? You've left, you've gone back to your hometown, you've spent some time there. Um, do you remember the sights? Do you remember the smells? Do you remember the music? Do you remember the food? Um, in a lot of ways... Um, I have remembered going back to my hometown. I mean, if you grew up in the Northeast, it's like this. Do you remember walking in December amongst the flurries of snow and hearing the sounds of Christmas? Do you remember that? If you're from the South, do you remember sitting by the lake, barbecuing and getting eaten up by mosquitoes? Do you remember that? You know, if uh, you grew up in the Northwest, do you remember how glorious summers are? You know, after months of rain, like right now, everybody wants summer. Like that's what we're so longing for. And it's funny, when I first moved up here, I was joking around where I'm like, everybody treats summer here like it's crack, like they just need it, like they're longing for it, like this is what they're after. But now that I live here, it's like, I want the crack too, like I'm in, I'm ready for, I'm ready for it. Um, but I remember going back to my high school specifically to either see like a drama production or a band concert, what do you know, I was a nerd, you're welcome, that's where I went. Um, but I remember going back and thinking like everything's smaller. Like, I remember going back to my, my house that I grew up in going, like, my room's smaller. Like, this is weird. Like, to me, it was huge, but now it's smaller. I remember back going, thinking, like, this, this isn't how I remember it. Like, things have changed and things have shifted here. Um, sometimes I go back thinking, like, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be like. There's sometimes some expectations in my heart that, that really need to be confronted. And I think sometimes that's why we don't go back. Sometimes we leave our hometown because we just want to get out. We've got a past. We've got a history. We've got a reputation that we just need to move beyond. Uh, this week I had the privilege of teaching up at Ecola Bible College, and some of the people, uh, some of the students who came, I was asking them, why you want to come to Ecola? And they said, I just, I got to get out. I just got to get out of my context. I need, I need a year of rest from wherever uh, I've been. And I think a lot of us, that's why we don't go back to our high school reunions. You know, like, we, like do you really want to see the girl that you almost dated, but then it didn't work out, and then you're married, you have to figure, you don't want to do that. 
You don't want to deal in that world. You know, in today's text, uh, Luke is taking the story of Jesus back into his hometown, back into Nazareth, back where he has a reputation, back where he's familiar with the landscape. And uh, apparently Jesus has some business that he needs to take care of before he starts his public ministry. Um, And in a lot of ways, this is where the opposition of Jesus starts. In a lot of ways, this is where, as of coming out of last week, you have Jesus who's in the desert and he's fighting Satan and fighting demons and fighting temptation. And he succeeds and he fulfills what God has called him to do in the midst of that time. But then he starts his road to ministry. And this is where we're picking up the story today. So if you have uh, your Bibles or if you're awesome like me and literally forgot your Bible at home, you can grab your phone. And there's a Bible on here. So verse, uh, verse 14 is where we're going to get started. And he says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So we pick up the story right after Jesus is coming off of the heels of being tempted by Satan for 40 days. Uh, the purpose of this temptation happened in two ways. First, it shows that his he is successful over temptation. Like he exists to be the sinless savior. He's the one who's going to come to right the wrongs of the world. But in order for him to do that, he has to feel the weight of what we feel. And second, because he can feel the weight of what we feel, he, as the author of Hebrews says, he becomes our advocate. He becomes the high priest who understands the pains and the struggles of living in humanity. And sure enough, people are, are, are talking about how Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. Because it says in the text here that you know, there was a report that kind of went out through him all throughout the country. So the word's getting out that Jesus had a crazy time in the desert. They don't know what happened, but Jesus had some, some crazy things happen. And now he's here, and now he's showing up to really you know, show up and teach what, what he taught. In a lot of ways, the story is starting to spread about Jesus' victory in the wilderness. And then in the midst of all of that... Uh, this is starting to kind of look utopic. You know, as you write a narrative, in a lot of ways, what drives the narrative forward? Tension. That's why, you know, like a lot of people talk about how much they love movies. They love the cinematography. They love how it's shot from here to here. You love the dialogue. Any Gilmore Girl fans out there, like you love the dialogue. That's why you love that show. You love the music. If you're a Hans Zimmer fan and you watch any of the Batman movies, you're like, okay, this is getting intense. But the reason why it's all intense is because there's drama in the story. If there's no drama, if you're walking around in flowers and lilies and all that stuff, and you have Hans Zimmer music, it's not going to make sense. There's nothing exciting happening. There's, there's nothing to move the story forward. And then as you look at the end of verse 15, it's, he's being glorified in all the synagogues. Jesus is showing up, and they're clapping him in, and they're clapping him out. Great job, Jesus. Glad that you had to say what you had to say today. But then he starts to show up in his hometown. And this is where the tone changes. This is where the scene gets dark. And it gets dark in a little bit of a complex way, and I'll show you how that works. So look in verse 16 with me. We're going to continue. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
So Jesus is doing nothing different than what he's already been doing. He's been going from synagogue to synagogue, and it would have been very common in that day to have any traveling rabbi show up in a synagogue and to be handed a particular scroll. Sure enough, Jesus was there, and uh, the main attendant of the synagogue would have saw that Jesus was a rabbi, and so he would have been given the opportunity to get up and say something, similar to pastors of local churches going and doing a pulpit swap, very much so what happened in the itinerant ministry of the rabbis. They'd show up at a synagogue, be able to share from God's word, and uh, be able to encourage the people that were present. So Jesus gets handed the scroll of Isaiah, and all throughout Isaiah, he's able to pick out wherever he wants to go. Now, if you're looking at a scroll, he's scrolling for a long time. You're rolling it out on one side, and then you're rolling it back on the other side to get to Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, uh, this quote is given. It's in verses 1 and verses 2. Now, in order for us to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to put Isaiah in the context of Isaiah. So you have these prophets that are existing during a similar time. They're called contemporaries. Contemporary prophets were those who lived probably in different sections of the kingdom, but happened to live at the same time. So you have Ezekiel and Jeremiah are of the similar contemporaries with Daniel. Where Daniel's in exile, far away from the kingdom of God, you have Jeremiah and Ezekiel writing to the kingdom of God in the midst of the land. So Isaiah specifically, though, is also one of those contemporaries. So Isaiah is split into two major sections. You have the first half of the book that deals primarily with Israel's disobedient ways. But what the, the start of the book happens where it talks about this idea of hope and judgment at the same time. There's this idea of judgment, that judgment, if, if you as God's people don't live the way that I've commanded you to live, there's judgment coming. And it's coming in the form of a king from Babylon. However, if you guys live by my rules, if you live by my statutes, I'm going to turn you into a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem that lives out my way so that the light of the nations can actually be displayed through you. So there's those two options in the first half of the text. And then what we find all throughout the first half of Isaiah is that you have this bounce between good king and bad king. You have the good kings who would do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but oftentimes they were outfavored by the bad kings. The bad kings who wouldn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, would do their own thing, would bring idols into the temple, would destroy the worship of God. And in light of all this, he says, if you don't repent, there's judgment coming. So what does Israel do? They don't repent. So when you get to the latter half of the book, chapters 40 through 66, you're now dealing with life in exile. And in the midst of that, in the second half of the book, you see something very unique to the Jewish mind called a chiasm. Now, for us as Americans, we build an argument based upon A plus B equals C ends up on D. That's the idea. So if you ever look at any argument, it starts with a good thesis. You have a lot of body paragraphs that demonstrate that that thesis is true. And then there's the reiteration of that said thesis. If you're a Hebrew, that doesn't make sense to you at all. You exist in this circular reality where everything can kind of intermix with one another. So this chiastic structure is really you have this outline where it goes, starts at A, goes to B, and lands on C. And C becomes the main point, the main whole thrust of what's going on. And then you go backwards to B and A. So it's like a mountaintop. This passage that Jesus is quoting is the mountaintop of that section. Everything at the end of Isaiah is pointing to this verse. So this verse has massive inclinations because here's what this verse means. It's saying that there's a servant who's going to come 
And this servant is going to be the one to inaugurate and usher in the kingdom of God. But this kingdom is not going to come through the way that Israel thinks it's going to come. It's going to come through a suffering servant. That's what's building up all the way to this section in Isaiah 61. They're going to announce that there's good news to the poor. There's good news for those who are far away from God. And this is that quote. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed the suffering servant to proclaim the kingdom of God to the poor. He's going to proclaim freedom and liberty for the captives. He's going to make those who are blind see. He's going to set free those who are oppressed. And he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're a Jew, that last line makes so much sense. And the reason why it makes sense is because Jews lived in this pattern of every seven years celebrating a festival called the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, there were three things that happened. You had kind of the resetting of the soil. So in an agrarian culture, they actually let the soil rest for a year. The sixth year is where they work double to produce double so that the seventh year they don't do anything with the soil. It's an opportunity for the soil to rest. There's a reversion of the land. So if you were to have to sell off your property, say you go bankrupt and you have to lose your home, in the year of Jubilee, that debt becomes forgiven. You get your home back. You are freed from the, the, the slavery in which you put yourself in. And in a lot of ways, the final section is really the redemption of slaves. There was a slavery program that exists within Israel and existed in a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures. Now, we can't think of it like the slavery that we understand, like the Amistad slavery, where we have shipped African Americans out of Africa and brought them here, and then we treated them horribly. The idea of the slave system is really like the boss and the employee system that we have here. At some point in time, you decided to become a slave to someone because you owed them a great debt. And because you couldn't pay that debt, you became their slave. You did what they asked you to do. And in this year, this is the big theme. The seventh year becomes a theme of your debt has been paid. If you're tens of thousands of dollars in debt and somebody repays your debt, what does that cause in your heart? Massive celebration. Massive. It's like a weight has been lifted off your shoulders. Things are completely different now. And this is why this year mattered because these people were in this rhythm every seven years of experiencing what it was like to have grace and mercy come from God to demonstrate what his kingdom is going to eventually look like. And then you have Jesus show up on the scene and say some words that are going to really unsettle the rest of those in the synagogue. This is what he says. Let's see how they respond in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and then he sat down. And the eyes of all that were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to him, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well of him, they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So apparently, Jesus got their attention. All of their eyes are on Jesus. And they're on Jesus because he read a familiar passage. And then after that familiar passage, he said that he's the fulfillment of it. That's literally the moment, if you're the cameraman, where everything goes zooming slow onto Jesus and goes, wait a minute, what did he just say? That's like having a guest preacher show up and say, hey guys, I'm going to preach to you on John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the Bible. Everybody knows it and says, hey, I'm the fulfillment of that. If some dude came up that you didn't know said that, that would be crazy. It would be crazier if you know the dude. It would be crazier if you know the dude. 
There's a reason why James the apostle didn't even worship Jesus until after he died. Why? Because James was his brother. If you grow up being the brother of the Son of God, you're either pissed off because he's way better than you, or you just don't even like want to even touch him. Like, if you're James growing up, you're always in trouble, and Jesus is always not in trouble. Like, that's a, that sucks. That's, you don't want that. But then this person that you know gets up and says, hey, I'm the servant of Isaiah 61. Mind-blowing for these people. But what do they do? They say, first they praise him, they're amazed by him, and then they say, is this not Joseph's son? This is the section where the mic drops, where all of a sudden people are going, wait a minute, we need to figure out this is Joseph's son. So some consider this a shocking moment because they think that the crowd is questioning the integrity of Jesus. So some scholars think of it like this. These people are saying, you're, you're, not, you're not the servant. Like, you built my table when my table broke. Like, you're Joseph's son. You're the carpenter. You came over to fix the framing on my house when it didn't work. Like, that's who you are. You're not the son of God. So that some could see this text and have this idea of like, you're, who are you? Like, you're not that. You're Joseph's son. I know who you are. But others say it's shocking because they deduce that they're actually trusting in what Jesus said. They're actually saying, okay, maybe you are the son of God. And here's why I think the second reason is more shocking and I think more true to the text. It's shocking because they believed him. But what they believed about him, come to find out, is wrong. They had this idea of what it meant for Jesus to be the servant, and specifically what Nazareth was going to receive because he was the servant. So what does Jesus do? Jesus perceives the room. He understands that they're kind of understanding what he's saying. And what he's about to do is he's about to join the ranks of the prophets. When prophets speak, people get angry. That's just how it works. As you look throughout the Old Testament, whenever somebody was told to be the mouthpiece of God, and when they spoke, they had a horrible life because of the opposition and the backlash that came your way. So what Jesus is now about to say is he's going to put him in the ranks of some of these prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, those who spoke the word of God, because now he's about to face some confrontation because they believe in who he is. This gets interesting. Watch this, verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And as he said that, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel's day, uh, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus is saying some stuff that we've got to get our, our, our bearings around. We've got to understand both of these stories and how these stories relate to him receiving opposition. So he understood the gravity of the situation. Jesus looks around the room again, like I said, sees the whispers, sees the men leaning into each other and saying, maybe he is this suffering servant. 
But this is the part where Jesus confronts them. And he confronts them based upon this. They have a self-focused understanding of his identity as the son of Joseph and actually not seeing him as the son of God. So what does Jesus do? He negates the cultural proverb. Physician, heal yourself. That was a proverb that was going around in the day. If you had some sort of divine power, people could say, hey, physician, heal yourself. So what does he do? He chooses not to engage that. He moves on. He says this. You know, what you've done in Capernaum, do here. In a sense, he's asking the rhetorical questions that they're not willing to voice. And he says, you know what, I'm not going to do that either, guys. Because both of those requests come from this self-focused place. And it comes from those who live within the heart of Nazareth. If you live in their cultural context, these questions make sense because it fits their worldview. Culturally speaking, there are certain benefits you receive from being a part of a community. As Joseph's son, whatever he's done for others, in a lot of ways, it should be that they receive something from him too. Why? Because he was theirs. He was their boy. He grew up in Nazareth. He's a homegrown person. They had claims on him. And they had claims on his work. So he grew up in this community having been known by everybody for the last 30 years, and when he announces that he's the servant of Isaiah 61, stating back from this point in time that the inauguration of the kingdom of God is coming through him, what is Nazareth expecting? They're expecting a kickback. They're expecting something to come from Jesus. But for us, in our, it's actually not too foreign for us. Because if you're from a small town, how many of you are from a small town? Okay, so if you're from a small town and you make it big, like, say you're a quarterback, and then all of a sudden you're playing, you're Tom Brady, you're playing today in the Super Bowl, okay? That's, say that's your trajectory. At some point in time, when Tom Brady goes back to his hometown, they're going to want him to do stuff for that town. Like, this, this is your field. Like, will you help us returf the field? Or, hey, you know what? You're a great quarterback. We've got some third-string guys and fourth-string guys who suck. Can you get them to, like, get the spiral? Can you bring something? People expect a kickback. This happens at casinos all the time. If you're playing blackjack, and then all of a sudden you get a win, all of a sudden you can tip your dealer. There's an expectation that dealers get tipped because if they do good things for you, you keep earning more money, so they keep earning more money. That same idea, they're expecting some sort of kickback. So therefore, Jesus says that this message that he's about to share is actually going to make him shun in his hometown. He's going to be unwelcome. Because Jesus is going to join those ranks of the prophets. So he goes into these two instances. He talks about Elijah first, and then Elisha second. So here's the gist of the story. The first story comes from 1 Kings 17, where you have Elijah. And then Elijah was, rule, was a prophet during the rule of a guy named King Ahab. What happened is that uh, Elijah prayed that the land would, would be famished because he was trying to teach the king a lesson. And so in the midst of all of that, he... Uh, this famine happens, and then what does God do? God sends him out of the land, and he sends him to a place called Zarephath. It's a forgotten Gentile territory north of the land of Israel. So what does he do? He meets a widow at a well. And sure enough, this widow ends up providing food and water for Elijah in his time away. And so what happens in the story is that the woman's son dies. And then what happens is Elijah feels horrible. Because he shows up, he's the prophet of God, and yet this 
son dies while he's present. So what does this mom do? This mom, who was, is a widow and now just lost his, her son, all of a sudden is going, so you came here to curse my kid? Like, my, my kid's now dead? For her, though, this is what makes it interesting. Because now not only is she a widow, but she actually becomes destitute. Her son was going to be the one to grow up and take care of her in that culture. So now this prophet shows up on the scene, and now her son's dead? This is a big deal. So what does Elijah do? Elijah comes in and raises her back to life, or raises him back to life, rather, so that this woman would not end up being the outcast in her society. This woman would not be rejected. This woman would not be put out as a widow. But she was actually a Gentile outcast who Elijah helped. Moving on to the second story. This is the story of Elisha. You have King Naaman, or you have, um, you have the commander of a king, uh, and his name was Naaman. And he was from the land of Syria, Jewish territory at the time. He had a highly contagious skin disease called leprosy. And so what that causes is that he was a person of prominence, status, and culture, so to speak. But then he was brought low because he was considered unclean. So uh, this uh, Jewish servant girl who was taken by one of his um, plunders of the land came with him. And she had said, why don't you go back to the land of Samaria? Because in Samaria, there's a king, and that king can heal you. The king in Samaria freaks out and says, I can't heal you. Why are you here? And all of a sudden, Elisha steps up and says, I can heal him, bring him here. So this king shows up who has leprosy, who's considered an outcast in society. He shows up, he knocks on Elisha's door, and he says, okay, so you're here to heal me. And then Elisha goes, you need to go to the Jordan River, dip in it seven times, and then you'll be clean. And then he gets pissed off. So I came all the way down here to knock on your door so that you could heal me, to send me to the dirtiest river in the entire land. There's cleaner rivers in Damascus. Why don't I just go there? This was me when I picked up my keys to my house in Sherwood. I drove to Beaverton to pick up the keys to my house because I needed to give them a renter's check. So I gave them a renter's check. They gave me the keys at my house because they were at my house. They're in a lockbox. They're there the entire time. And I drive there to pick up the keys and the keys are at the house where I just was. Makes no sense. So for Naaman, it's like, hey, this makes no sense. I came here, and you're not doing anything. So what does he do? He has a friend say, hey, trust him. So he gets in the water, and after seven times of dipping, he becomes clean. Now what does that do for Naaman? That makes Naaman back a part of the community again. He's no longer an outcast. He's not unclean in society where nobody else can touch him. He's a part of the community of faith again. He's brought back into the fold, so to speak. So both of these stories have the same idea. Whether it's Jew or Gentile, Jesus uh, is aligning himself with Elisha and Elijah who went to the outcasts in society to tell them about the good news of the kingdom. And how Jesus casts it is, is he casts it in a different way. He says, look, there's widows all over the place in Israel. But Elijah went to the one that God told him to go to. There's lepers all over the land of Israel, but Elisha went to the one that God told him to. So when Jesus is saying this, he's saying, guys, I need to correct your understanding of the good news of the kingdom. It's not about the kickback that Nazareth receives. It's about going to those who are broken and poor and impoverished and outcasted in society, those who are women and children and those in poverty and sickness. Those are the ones who need to hear this good news of the kingdom. So he corrects their understanding 
and then the crowds absolutely lose it. Look at this, verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So all of a sudden, Jesus becomes the source of a witch hunt, kind of like Monty Python. Everybody's just showing up with pitchforks, and they're angry, and they're upset, and they're trying to grab the witch. And that would be Jesus. They're, they're upset with him. They're upset with him because what he just said went against their understanding of what the gospel was. In a sense, they're saying, how dare you say this, Jesus? We have rights on you. We have claims on you. And he says, my claim is for the outcast. My claim is for those who are far from the kingdom of God. So what do they do? They try to throw him off the edge of the cliff. And in true Jedi fashion, he just slips right through the crowd. And all of a sudden, that's where Luke ends the text today, where Jesus narrowly escapes being thrown off a cliff. The beginning of the story, they're praising him. The end of the story, they're throwing him off a cliff. So what happened there? Why, why was there such a juxtaposition of ways? Why was there such a turning of ships, so to speak? There was such a turning of ships because Jesus confronted the selfish nature of those who were present. He confronted those in Nazareth, Nazareth who thought there was a kickback coming. He said, no, there's no kickback coming. It's for those who are far from me that I've come. And so for us, how can we respond to a text like this? I think the first point is this, that the good news of the kingdom of God is for the other. All who follow Jesus have to have an accurate view of what the gospel actually is, not just a cultural understanding of what it means for them. And let me be clear on this. When I say that the kingdom of God is for the other, I'm not saying the kingdom of God is not for you. That's ridiculous. God came to save sinners. Jesus came to seek in the lost, which you and I are a part of that lost category. However, unlike much of our underlying feelings of the gospel, the gospel doesn't stop with you. That would also be ridiculous. It's a movement that continues beyond you to the other, the least of society, the broken, the hurting, those who the gospel is for. So what this confronts for us is our own selfishness, guys. Our own selfishness. This passage challenges us to look at the gospel in light of the other, but that, what that does is it confronts us. We can't be the Christians who are in it for the kickback. We're, we're satisfied like our, like our Lord Jesus was in the relationship with the Father, so we lack nothing. There's nothing we need from God because we have his presence with us, and that gives us comfort and security. But yet, for so many in the church, that's not how it operates. Here's a question for us to consider. When you think about your relationship with God, does it just stop there? Do you think about what God does for you, or are you thinking about what God is going to do through you because he's what he's done in you? You read in order to share. You, you pray in order to be ready to give. You love in order to demonstrate who he is. And this is how the church, the people of God, for the gospel of God, are meant to operate. The commands of the scriptures are very clear. That we, it doesn't say love yourself. It doesn't say read the Bible for yourself. It doesn't say pray for yourself. Because the concept is that you have to love one another. The gospel work that God does in us is meant to flow through us, not stop like the dam of a river. It's supposed to keep going. 
We can't be hospitable to the stranger when we're fearful to let people in our own home. You know, when you're at a gathering, when you're at your house, wherever you are, is your focus on the other or is your focus on yourself? The good news of the gospel is that it sets you free from thinking about yourself to where you can actually be like this suffering servant who did not think of himself as something to be held on to. But what did he do? He gave himself up for everything. And this good news sets you free from the gospel that we now know as individualism. You know, where all that matters is where the buck stops with you. And so here's the second point for us to have to consider today. It's this. We need to get on board or we need to get off the boat. If there's something clear from this text, it's that the gospel is for the other. And there are those who oppose Jesus and his true message of the gospel. Here's the second question I have to ask us. Is how you're viewing the gospel actually make you live in opposition to the gospel that you believe? Are you and I like the people of Nazareth, expecting some kickback from God because of what we've done for him or because of what he's done for us? And I think here's why this matters for us specifically as Colossae Sherwood. Like, we are a church plant. We are a new body of believers who desire to make Jesus known in this community. But here's why this also matters. If we don't hold to the vision of us being disciples who make disciples, that we're a church that embraces the gospel for the other, we're going to become a social club. We're going to satisfy the needs of people who are here, and we're not going to become the missionary people of God that he has called us to be in this community. So here's my request from you as your pastor. Will you become a contributing member to this cause? Will you die to yourself in order to see the gospel flourish here and now? If there's one thing that's going to kill a church plant, it's the modern day gospel. It's the mentality that the church is here for me and not for the other. It's the mentality that I always need something from someone rather than having something to give towards someone. It's the mentality of consumerism that causes us to come in and look after our own interest and what's the best deal and what's the best preacher and what's the best worship leader and what's the best donuts. It's the mentality of individualism where, where, where like you become God. It's the satisfying of your highest goal. It's the mentality that's killing the church nationwide. We're so inwardly focused about what we want that we forget it's about the gospel of the other. So Jesus calls us to live this radical life of joining in his mission to understand that gospel and to live in light of that. So here's my request for you. Get on board or please get off the boat. I mean that with love in all of my heart. Because at the end of the day, our church has to be a place that's about the other, when it becomes about inward issues and inward fighting, that's what the church is known for, just bickering and issues. I want to lead a church where we are all the missionary people of God. And yes, there's going to be issues. There's sinners in here. But we work through that because we believe the gospel, right? That we believe that the gospel is powerful than just what I want. There's too many people who are dying and headed towards a Christless eternity for us now at this stage of the game for all of us to not be on board. And like the prophets, 
this is a hard message to preach because I'm looking at all your faces. But the reality is the scripture teach that as a pastor, I have to share bad news sometimes. And my hope is this, that all of us would jump on board and be about the gospel of the kingdom here and now. And what that means is that you and I have to die to ourselves again and again and again. So that the empty seat next to you would be filled with someone who needs to hear about the love of Jesus. So that each one of us can collectively get over ourselves, our own egos, our own pride, the stuff that holds us back, so that we can be a contributing member of this. And in reality, this is what God wants for all of us. God wants us all to be in the boat, going the same direction. And as we come across a text like this this morning, that's a tough one to hear. I want you to hear it in love. We have to be a place where the stranger is welcome. We have to be a place where the other is accepted. We have to be a place that thinks beyond ourselves. And here's the cool part. I don't think we're at a point yet where we are that church, which is why this message matters now. We have to lay the vision that we are a church that pursues the gospel, the true gospel, that's pursuing those who are lost, broken, hurting, needy. And we're just starting this thing. And my hope is that we can tether this thing really well and stay really close to the true gospel of Jesus that invites us all to be a part of his reconciling work. Marcus is going to come and we're going to sing and we're going to look at the bread and the cup. And today, come to the bread and the cup with a renewed vision. Come to the bread and the cup saying, Jesus, you broke your body on that cross for me. Jesus, you shed your blood on that cross for me. Why? Not just for me, but for someone who I'm going to meet this week, who I need to talk about Jesus to. Or the, the hurting neighbor who is just crying because of the issues in his or her life. You can impact their world. So come to the communion table today with that heart of a missionary. That God's calling us to a place of joining him in what he's doing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thanks for the opportunity to look at a tough passage like this that can confront who we are. I pray that your spirit would do uh, the work of confrontation in each one of our lives, God, mine included. I need it too. That we would all be less self-focused. That we would all be focused more on the kingdom of God. And thank you that you've started something here in Sherwood. And I pray that you would consider making it go forward again and again, God. We love you. We need you. We're in need of your spirit to help us not look for a kickback from you, but to live a life of giving because of what you've done. We need you.